2: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: Hello, Simon. Hello, Brian. Very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you too. Thank you very much for doing this. I really am very, very pleased that you're here to do this.
1: So we'll... interestingly, we we look very similar.
0: know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you know, we yeah we have the baldness theme. And I, I was I was reading through the uh you know the diary and. Uh, Again, and I I was finding all these references to to haircuts as well, which was very... uh... (laughs) (laughs) It's full In in relation to access thinking and, um, you know, uh, neat versus shaggy, masculine versus feminine. And Mm -hmm. uh, you make a very interesting remark where you talk about, uh, you know, Axis thinking is an aim for a continuum of possibilities between two uh, between two extremes and then um, What about haircuts? Um, (laughs) Becomes the question and then um and then the same the same uh, which is going to you know bring us to hopefully to What we're going to talk about um, What we what wants to talk about was the You had you make a remark about empathy and you say that um uh the the usual view is that human culture begins with language we're you know we're linguistic animals and that's that is that's that's a view um but you say and there's lots of evidence to back this up that it starts elsewhere perhaps starts with other things like uh visual things musical things but it Mm -hmm. starts with empathy um and you think it starts with empathy which is beyond language but a precondition for it you say back then yes and I guess what we're yeah
1: so what I what I would say is that it, it really begins with what they call theory of mind which is which is the ability to understand what might be in another person's mind and to understand that that might be different from what's in your mind I mean this is essential for humans, that this is why we're able to communicate with each other, because we, we know that we don't have exactly the same picture in mind. So I can talk to the picture that I know you have, mm-hmm. with, and I can slightly modify the way I describe it um, so that I can communicate with that picture. And this is, of course, why humans can lie. Um, humans can lie because they, they know how to create a false picture in somebody else's head. And Mm -hmm. until recently it it was thought that only humans because it requires this thing called theory of mind. But um, now it turns out that some animals are capable of deceit. Like certain birds are capable of misleading other birds about where they've hidden food, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Certain chimps can do that as well. Certain of our primate cousins. So it, it isn't Unique to humans, but it's very, very much more highly developed in us. I think this this ability to inhabit somebody else's mind, and we can even make quite quite complicated ideas. Like Mary knew that David was angry with Joan because she had been unkind to Jill. So there we're talking, we're sort of inhabiting a chain of four minds in a row Mm -hmm. Um, and this this seems to be uniquely human i think and so the the question is how did we get to be like that and are we getting better at being like that you know is 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 it possible that that's one of those a, a sort of human mental skill that
0: that is evolving over time um i don't know i mean there's you know there's a, there's a, there's a lot of debate say in the history of philosophy about you know where um you see where where morality originates and uh you know there are certain people that think it's reason right, that can't mm-hmm. and there are others uh usually called moral sense theorists who say really begin something else with a feeling like sympathy mm-hmm. Or empathy, or, uh, mm-hmm. or benevolence, and um, I I um I prefer <laughs> that view of things, uh, but the problem is how you generalise that and how you deal with situations where there's an obvious lack of empathy, or where people where that empathy will be used to get deceive or lie, or manipulate yes. or deceive, and that's that you know once we once we introduce you know that the the, the world of emotions into into things like morality and politics, which is you know, obviously there, then then the capacity for deceit is obviously magnified. Does that mm-hmm. change in human behaviour? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I suppose I'm not a huge um, fan of progress in a way. I mean, it's a it, it's a nice idea. You know, it looks good on the Brazilian flag, and uh, but I think that might be the best place for it. I think there are certain mm-hmm. capacities which human beings have in in groups, uh, which are which 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 are linguistic, but they're also visual, symbolic, uh, musical, uh, collective, and they. Um, yeah. I guess and that, so you know the, the question which I guess you wanted to you, you suggested and I think is a is a good question. You know, why do we do art? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that issue. Why why do we do art? I mean there are. Different ways of, of, of tackling that. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, I. I. Um, I don't know what you what you. I've got a sense of what your what your view is, but I'd, I'd I'd like to know what your your view of that is. I mean, I've got maybe a, uh, an idiosyncratic response to it, which is more like. Well, yeah, but go on. You go first. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, it's it's quite a long story, so um, I won't try to tell the whole of my thoughts about that question. It It is to me the most interesting question of all. For instance, to make it very specific, why do we like music? Why would we be interested in one set of noises rather than another? And not only interested in, sometimes completely obsessed by, moved to tears by, moved to rage by, <laughs> This set of noises made by a group of instruments, rather than another set of noises made by the same group of instruments, um, we we obviously feel very strongly about this thing that isn't figurative. It's not telling us a story in any obvious novelistic way. Um, what what is actually happening to us? So this is this is actually why I got interested in haircuts because <laughs> I wanted. I, I want to be able to talk about those sorts of aesthetic choices we make, but not in relation to things like paintings or symphonies, because we don't all share those. Mm-hmm. Tastes, but nearly everybody shares a feeling about their haircut. So, so I want to look at the haircut as a sort of aesthetic, a set of aesthetic decisions that everybody makes um, just like they make decisions about what kind of music they like, mm-hmm. and, to, and this is where this axis thing came up,
0: yeah.
1: because when you make a haircut decision, for instance, one axis in haircut decision might be masculine, feminine. You can have a totally feminine haircut, um, like a a beehive, for instance. That that's mm-hmm traditionally a totally feminine haircut, or you can have a totally masculine one, like a sort of, like what we've got, <laughs> buzz cuts. <laughs> um, and of course, playing with those gender positions and everything in between those two is interesting. You know, that that's a long continuum and there's lots of places in between. So, somehow when when we're making a choice about our haircuts, we're making choices about where we want to be, for instance, on the masculine-feminine axis, Mm
0: -hmm. for
1: instance, on the primitive-futuristic axis, on the natural-contrived axis, on on a whole set of axes like that. And I think, I mean, I'm I'm making a very short circuit in this argument here, but I think that any artwork is really as well as lots of other things, it's really a package of these propositions, these axes, mm-hmm. and it, and it, it has a particular address in that nest of axes. Any artwork is is a sort of particular place in of those things, you know mm-hmm. um, And I think we quite t- unconsciously, most of the time, or subconsciously, make decisions about those things and have strong feelings about them you know people say and they mean it i wouldn't be seen dead in that referring yeah. to a piece of clothing or a haircut or something mm-hmm. um so the feelings are very strong and i think they're strong because at some level we know what those things represent we know what a haircut means yeah if nothing else it means i'm like one of those kinds of people who has that kind of haircut mm-hmm. and You might not even be able to articulate or to take apart what that package of things is, but nonetheless it has some meaning to you. So so that's that's a first answer to that question, um, of why do we get so obsessed with artworks? Um so I think, you know, you you can apply the same kind of argument to clothes or to earrings or to songs or to sculptures. Or to anything else, you can you can always say what set of axes are being explored here. Yeah, it's probably not the funnest way to enjoy a piece of work, but that's it's a good question to ask.
0: Well, I was I mean because my my mother and uh, my mother was a hairdresser and my sister uh, was a hairdresser, and so you know I was experimented on when I was a <laughs> young child relentlessly. So my baldness was a kind of revenge against <laughs> that. So there could be no haircut because there was no hair. My mother always held me personally responsible for going bald. She used to say, you know, you have that lovely hair. you've said, lovely hair, what happened to it? And she used to insist it was blonde as well. I've got photographs which I wasn't blonde, it was brown, but she insisted. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, yeah, so uh, baldness is my revenge. Now I wanted to I was big, no I was I was here's because we're we we're, we're improvising here obviously and um, <laughs> as will be clear to the audience we're <laughs> improvising. The the um the and I was did I did this um my last class for the semester on Tuesday and um and I mentioned this just because it was interesting what transpired that the Uh, it's been a class on called pandemic mysticism. It's been an odd class Mm -hmm. taking these ideas, taking the fact that we've been in these kind of withdrawals, these kind of anchor holds uh, retreated from the world and living like, you know, in this kind of monk-like or nun-like state Mm -hmm. for the last year. And what is that? And that's thrown up all of these strange emotions, right? Uh, Anxiety, depression, and all of that, which which have been talked about. But one thing that I've, so we've, we've been looking at some of these texts for this semester, but the last class I wanted to do it on music. And because uh, the sense that I've had over the, the uh, over COVID is that the, I mean, what you say about haircuts and, you know, other, other types of things, earrings and, and perfume is, is true, but there's a particular kind of intensity that people have experienced around music in the last, in general, over the last year. And this class went on for nearly three hours, and students just picked a piece of music that they that meant a lot to them and why it meant a lot to them. And the range was was startling. But the what 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 bound them together was just the the sense of uh of what this meant, how deeply this was felt, without that necessarily being able to be articulated. So there is something I think certainly for me about music which is able to carry um a kind of intensity which other forms of music other forms of art yes, they can do that but for me less pointedly i guess because i have less of a vocabulary for articulating i don't really know what music does to me i just know that it does it and um and then questions of taste and questions of you know become really important and you know as, as as we all know but but i just wondered um, whether that made sense to you that the um, there's something characteristic something incredibly intense about the you know the what what do we do with our question in relationship to music in the last period of time and how we might yes, well think about I, I think i think i think the
1: reason i said that question why do we like music is because it's so ex- an extreme version of that mystery you can say, why do we like novels? And there's a whole other set of reasons for liking novels, like mm-hmm. the story, the momentum of the story, and the fascination of the characters in the story and so on. But if you want a purely abstract form of art, music is it. You know, this is music is where painting finally got to in the early 20th century when people like Kandinsky started leaving out the subject, as it were. Mm um they weren't making paintings of anything like of a painting of a scene or of a ship or of a nude or something like that um music had been doing that for centuries no music never had a subject in that sense um of course songs do there that's a slightly special case then they have a narrative element in them but but music despite the efforts of the people who write the text on classical music covers where they try to say that here Beethoven is uh, portraying the bubbling of a mountain stream and all that bollocks which all (laughs) of us know is not nothing to do with what's actually going on um we have to accept that music is simply about itself really it's it's Mm -hmm. about the arrangement of things in relation to each other um you know, you have opera where you sort of graft on a narrative as well, but most of us listen to opera in a language we don't understand and have no idea what what it's about, and it doesn't matter. We we aren't concerned with that. You don't you don't need subtitles with music. You know, you don't mm-hmm. you don't have French music translated for you or Belgian music translated for you. Um, so so to me, it's a it, Makes this question particularly um, pointed because you can't point to any of the conventional reasons for for liking an art form of saying oh well it, it's a good story or those kinds of novelistic reasons that you might um, use with a with some kind of written text. So my my question is what is happening when you listen to a piece of music? What is happening to you? Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is quite a, a big subject, but I I think what is happening is that you are agreeing to enter into a world with, with a set of internal values and a sort of internal logic to it. Mm-hmm. So um, I say that about an internal logic because the logic of a, you know, a 1928 blues recording. The internal logic of that is quite different from the internal logic of a symphony orchestra playing mm-hmm. a big piece like that. But there is a logic, and what, as soon as you hear the first few notes, you know the kind of world of listening that you're in. You don't listen to a blues musician and say, where are the oboes? Yeah, Where's I... the harp? Who's yeah. <laughs> the conductor? You, you know that it's a different set of rules in, the, in each of these worlds. And as soon as you know that, you, you work within the terms of that world. So, suddenly, de- certain details become very interesting, and they wouldn't be in another musical language. Um, certain things are missing completely, they aren't a subject at all. Um, for instance, to take an example, in most classical music, variety is a big issue you know Mm -hmm. things go from the loud movement the to the quiet movement to this bad movement (laughs) um to the energetic movement there's there's always that kind of motion but then if you listen to composer like steve reich or or actually to quite a lot of religious music there isn't that sort of dynamic there's a steady state yeah so But in each case, when you come to them as a listener, you sort of immediately twig, oh, yes, this is we're now under these kinds of rules. We're now in this sort of world and I'm going to enjoy being in that world. But the important thing of that about that for me is understanding that what you're doing is entering an imaginary world of some kind.
0: Yeah.
1: And then seeing how you feel about it, you know, Mm -hmm. suddenly oh i love this world oh i don't like this one very much um Mm -hmm. we're picking and choosing between worlds now you you said something in your book that i really like if i can remember it Uh, um theater theater is the night kitchen of democracy is that right
0: yeah i did say that
1: yeah yeah that's 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 a really nice sentence i think because it to me it it captures this thing that I think art does. It gives you a place to try things out. Mm-hmm. Now, again, in novels, that in theatre and film, that's very clear how that's done. You invent a scenario, you invent characters who inhabit it, and then you see what happens to them. Yeah. Um, that's a really wonderful thing to do, and it's a way that we understand a lot about the world. But for me, the more difficult question is, are we doing the same thing as that when we look at say a Jackson Pollock painting or a Steve Reich piece of music or something that doesn't have any narrative content, how are we, is that the same process going on? And so that's the question that I like to ask and I like to think of ways of answering it. But. I'll let you, i let you proceed for a moment.
0: It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's the, The, the Theatre is the Night Kitchen of Democracy is also, you know, it's the, because um, I wrote um, that piece and other pieces, I was living in Athens and um, in 2019 and writing some pieces from there. And there you've got, you know, on one side of the Acropolis, you have, the Agora, and democracy, and the the, the council, the Boule, and all of those institutions. Then the other side of the Acropolis, the rock, you have the you know what was the theater, and mm-hmm. this described as uh, you know people didn't say they were going to the theater. The Athenians didn't say that. They said they were going to musique, right? They were going to music. Right. This was this was kind of music, dance. That was what was going on in theater, and. Often, what was going on in those two places seems to be completely contradictory. You have a world of, let's say, you know, democracy, limited as it was, mm-hmm. in Athens, but you know they invented it, and theatre, they invented that too, and 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 contrasting worlds: a world of you know kings and uh, a, sort of a mythic world which had gone, uh, at the same time as you know this other world of democracy which was being. Stage. And the relationship between the two is really hard to figure out. The the, the music of it is um, I think is very important. And look, I wanted to I wanted to, to also take this in. There's some things I'd like to bring up. Um, one is idiot glee, from mm-hmm. uh, yeah, which I think is is something we could do with a lot more idiot glee. It's it's a very nice concept and the way you describe it coming from a conversation with Fripp, i think on a subway station or something it, it's but yeah the, the just the, the feeling of being glad to be alive and i think yeah music does that music makes me glad to be alive all the time how it does that um is the issue i mean i think the the um the way you described it in terms of entering into worlds accepting a kind of the logic of what yes um but i suppose there's also um uh but does that capture the 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 pathos of music and the intensity of music and the way we're we're transported by it and you know and i also feel that you know um let me Quote something you wrote back at you and see what you think about it now. Obviously, so this is this is 25 years ago in the uh, the diary, but I thought it was just a very interesting remark. And you describe it as your most optimistic thought. Um, you say this is my most optimistic thought. The people the people abandoned increasingly the increasingly perilous old definitions of identity, such as race, and ethnicity, and class and blood. And start thinking of identity as something multiple shifting, blurred, experimental, and adaptive. I think Mm. the philosophical underpinning for such a change is already sliding into place under the guise of pure entertainment. And that's (laughs) absolutely and it's also that the and I think that music does something like that. That there is a s the experience of it is an experience of Identity, which we seem to be still deeply attached to, but as multiple, shifting, blurred, experimental, hybrid, fluid, and we can, you know, which means that we can listen to music from completely different cultures with 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 a a deep intensity, a shared intensity, and in many ways, the the I mean, your most your most optimistic thought, but I think the I, I feel that optimism. I think probably probably only in music. When I'm when I'm listening to music and talking about music and experiencing music with people, and then you see someone that you've got you know, maybe little in common with, and then you 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 get to talking about music, and then you find these common points of reference and these common yeah. felt intensities, and then and then a world opens up in a different way. So, how would you do? You still feel optimistic in that way?
1: yes you you said something just when we started out actually you said um you said something that questioned the idea of progress and i i generally would agree with you about that i don't i'm not um wedded to the sort of stephen pinker idea that everything's getting better all the time right. um, and and i have a lot of arguments with my californian friends about this who clearly believe that it is despite the evidence um as far as i can but but one thing that i do think is different um would in your mind would progress be a proper name for the the generalization of empathy for instance yeah i i think it is significant that you know when that big tsunami happened in 2005. Do you remember when hundreds of thousands of people suffered? That all over the world, people started sending money Mm -hmm. to people they would never meet, never Mm -hmm. even know who this money was going to. And I thought that was really quite extraordinary. And I saw something of that kind of empathy last year as well. Um, During the worst days of COVID, my daughter is a doctor and. I heard many stories from her about this kind of thing, um, and I think that that is quite interesting. That we don't seem to be so chained as we used to be to family or clan or immediate connections. We we have much a much broader set of connections, and I I'm sure that one of the reasons we we do that is because we share so much art together. Uh-huh. I, I'm Art in a very broad sense, meaning um, you know all sorts of pop culture and foodstuffs and you know I'm not whenever I use the word art i 'm not just talking about high art I'm talking not about sure. yeah. everything stylistic that people do um, and I'm sure that that makes us capable of starting to believe that all those other people aren't savages you know the way in mm-hmm. When you ask what does what does the name you know iglalu su mean or whatever the name of the ethnic group is, and it turns out that it always means the people so it used to be the case that everyone thought that they were the people so as it were the chosen people this just this little group that I happen to belong to mm-hmm. i I think people think of, think less and less like that now, perhaps I'm being optimistic in believing that but um but I think that there is a sense when we when we enjoy the art of another nation that we are somehow or another people we're somehow connecting at the at a level below language lower than deeper than language. Mm-hmm. Um, we might not agree on quite a lot of things if we actually articulated them, but we at least agree that we are both. Of the same hum- level of humanity to be able to enjoy this same artifact. Mm-hmm. Um, something connects us. Uh, I, d- I don't know if
0: that's. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm also. The, the, to, to qualify the, the thought about progress, it's not that. My problem with progress is that it, you know, it induces forgetfulness or it can induce the idea of history as a kind of yeah. a linear. History is yes. a it's going it's an arrow it's going this way and it's not yeah it is a series of loops it's a kind of almost like a a strange piece of generative music it's a kind of it's a kind of it's a kind of looping back and forth and things are things are remembered and things are forgotten and you know what and then it can be quite saddening in a way that you know for example um in relation to the pandemic and a question, you know, we were talking about earlier on was, you know, has the pandemic, you know, what is the point of art and philosophy in a world falling apart? Has COVID taught us anything? And um, we, you know, we think, well, we grew up in cultures of that were seem to be committed to remembering things like the First World War. There was a monument yeah. in every village. And every But well, we forgot the Spanish flu. Hmm? We forgot that. We you know we remember the first World War and it's terrible and it did but but it did these extraordinary things. It led to these extraordinary innovations in, in art and in in philosophy, it led to Wittgenstein's mm-hmm. Tractatus, uh, Rosenzweig, Freud, Heidegger, all these things and in poetry, Eliot's Wasteland and whatever, all these amazing things. But we forgot the flu. And mm-hmm. and so, in a sense, the, the the last year for me has been also about not so much progress, but in the sense that there's a kind of looping back to something archaic yeah. in us, and yes. and now we think, oh, of course, yeah, human society is defined by plague, right? That that's 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 what that's what happens in human societies. They they they're affected by pestilence, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's happened to us. And in that remembering of that something. I mean, elemental is is awoken in us which i don't think we've figured out yet there's 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 fear and anxiety and and sadness there's that there's also a a real wish for pleasure for diversion for for, for distraction mm-hmm. and um and it's also it's um you know there, there there is one hopes you know a creative possibility in in this right if there if the the plague in its terrible effects can also shake things up in a way that allows for new new kinds of experimentation to 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 appear and um do you know that happens (laughs) do you know that there's a book by a
1: writer called walter scheidel who's a um i don't know what nationality he is he teaches in california um the book is called um, The Great Leveller, yeah. and it's, he's a historian, sort of an economic historian, and he goes through 5,000 years of history showing that the only thing that tames inequality is war or pestilence. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, whenever there's, whenever there's a real breakdown of society because of war or pestilence, for a little while, things improve. Afterwards, things, mm-hmm. things get more equal. For instance, the famous case is the Black Death, where for the first time ever, feudal serfs, workers, had the chance to uh, argue about their wages because they were in demand. There weren't yeah. enough of them. So many yeah. had died in the plague. And he, it's a quite depressing book because the sort of message of it is that things only ever get better after they've been really bad. Mm -hmm. So things have to get really bad to improve. And I I sort of wonder if we're on that trajectory now. We're seeing the most extraordinary inequality that has ever existed in world history, Mm -hmm. with people so unthinkably rich and lots and lots of people so unthinkably poor. And we're seeing, you know, a climate crisis. We're seeing democracy crumbling in many ways. We're right at the edge of a big collapse it seems and the only possible good news is that maybe after that there'll be a a revival some there'll be a new a new beginning you know like there was after the plague and like there was actually after the second world war you know you had that 35 40 year stretch after the second world war before neoliberalism thatcher thatcher and reagan and so on you had a period where you had some kind of working and effective socialism the mm-hmm. national health service what an incredible idea
0: yeah yeah
1: and it was built and it worked
0: yeah and and it enabled someone like you and then someone like me to get educated to um, yeah. to to move from one set of social circumstances to another Uh, without having to pay huge amounts and and it was yeah and it's and it's and and it's gone yeah i i hope the i mean the the question of i mean i was teaching um julian of norwich uh a few weeks ago and um I teaching her book showings, which is the first book in you know in English by a woman that we we know it we know for sure is by a woman, which uh, and it's it's extraordinary that it's not it's not read more. But there was also there she is in her anchor hold in her kind of lockdown for 30 years in St Julian's Church in in Norwich, and Outsiders Black Death, which i think in in the city of Norwich, which was the second biggest city in England at the time uh, I think a third of the population died mm-hmm. and proved common across the whole of the whole of britain that led to a labour shortage that led to the peasants revolt that led yes. to the biggest you know insurgency and uh insurrectional status which britain uh, which which England experienced until the uh, you know the seventeenth century and I mean, you know, you um, the, the, to that extent, the the conditions are conditions are propitious, maybe, uh, you know, these, and I think all these they're possibly propitious. And the, I mean, the, what um, what for me philosophy can you know do is that I mean philosophy is um, you know is, is is thinking that takes place in in solitude, and in conditions of pestilence, a lot of the time you've got, you know, philosophers locked up like Boethius and uh, and and Socrates and, and many others. And in a sense, it can that that feeling of withdrawal um, and uh, reflection. The fact that we've been through this philosophical moment over the last year has thrown up all sorts of um, all sorts of feelings. And there's a tendency, there's, there's a strong desire to kind of manically push those aside and go back to normal and have a good time yeah. and have a holiday, and that's fine. But, you know, you really wonder whether uh, this could be, this could, this could develop in more interesting ways. I mean, in the, the preface to the, um, the, new, the, perhaps the new edition of the diary, you ask a question which uh, I thought was, you know, you, you say even 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 an empire cannot change biological reality. And I wonder whether it will make any difference to how we view the role of leadership in the future, not the macho braggarts, not the, we make our own reality brigade, but the people who have the humility to listen to science and the humanity to care enough to act on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's well said, and I guess I... Um, we'll find out, as Philip Larkin
1: would say, <laughs> we will find out. I mean, unfortunately, I think we are finding out already, and it's kind of depressing. I was, I was at a meeting, I'm on the board of a public institution here in England, and at the beginning of the meeting, the chairman said, well, we hadn't met for a while, would everybody like to sort of give their assessment about where we are after this period of COVID and how, you know, how are things doing? And one by one, people were saying, oh, it's great. People are spending money like nobody's business. Everything's back up. Property prices are going up. And And I was getting more and more depressed. I was thinking, is that what it's about then? We're just going to get back on the train and act Mm -hmm. as if nothing happened. It seemed to me like the most extraordinary failure of of an opportunity, actually. You know, we had an opportunity. And I, I really sincerely hope that people, first of all, start remembering a few things about how last year, when we were suddenly made aware of who the essential workers were, they weren't people running hedge funds, they Mm -hmm. were people doing shitty, bad paid jobs Mm -hmm. that we hadn't paid any attention to for a very long time. And suddenly we're hanging on there, you know, admiring them and applauding them every Thursday night and so on. which we should have been doing perhaps for all the previous Thursday nights as well. So, there was that, there's that. And the other thing that came up was I remember so well last year how so many people were saying, do you know what, I haven't been into a shop for two months and I don't mind. I haven't Mm -hmm. bought any new shoes or clothes and actually I'm quite enjoying this. I'm quite enjoying wearing the same things every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I actually like being with my family I haven't had a chance to do this right. i just hope that people don't forget that that we were sort of all reborn in a funny way last um, yeah
0: And he found me more narrowly with 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 music in the sense in which um um then what's been going because in a sense the when i was you know rereading the diary and i've been thinking about things and um thinking about the um well a couple of things really there's the there's the idea in a sense of you know the the, say generative music which you you know pioneered uh and you know, back in that book, I think you talk about there's there three options: there's live music, recorded music, and generative music. And you know, and and it also happens now with streaming that you know you let the algorithm do its magic, and a whole yeah. evening you have to make a choice. And then and, and you and then the weird things you find yourself listening. I thought, this is pretty good. You know, goes mm-hmm. this? They know my taste so well. And I, I don't know what you, 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 you think about that. And also that the there's another concept which is just good to remember that you introduced, which I think is um, it, it just keeps getting lost because we just focus on individuals. We focus on, you know, heroic, heroic yeah. figures, great figures, stars, the people we admire, which is maybe that's just human weakness. But, you know, you're, you say that you're a against what you call the, the big man idea of history mm-hmm. and you talk about uh, not genius but seniors genius and i think that's um that's a very interesting concept because it you know if you look at the periods of extraordinary creativity in popular music in the last 70 years indeed they've all been seniors moments all been moments yes. where certain concatenations of individuals have found themselves in a place or a number of places and they've they found something together, and this is how you know punk happened, and how you know we, we know we, you know the story. And I wonder what the conditions for seniors are now, or have yeah. been. That really puzzles me. And then, yeah. Well, I th- I think
1: one of the interesting things about last year, certainly for me, and for many people I know, is is the possibility of having conversations like this. I mean, we're we're, we're geographically 3,000 miles apart. We're at different times of the day. And to have arranged this conversation three years ago would have been incredibly complicated. Hotels, planes, you know, all the apparatus. Um, Well, now we can have conversations like this three or four times a day where we're talking to people in Beijing, in Sydney or wherever. So that to me is very interesting that, I've seen so many um, sort of thought coalitions come into existence in the last year of people being able to have complicated and interesting conversations repeatedly. Mm -hmm. You know, so bringing people together once is difficult enough with all the planes and the hotel rooms, but for them to be able to do it every week, you know, I have one discussion group that I'm part of, it's just four of us, Mm that we're in three different continents every week and have a chat. Um, this is such an incredible luxury. Um, mm-hmm. When could you ever do that in history before? So, you know, you have that great genius of ancient Greece. That was Athens mm-hmm. was was one of the great genius, by the way, for the benefit of people who don't know. is Whereas genius is sort of the intelligence of a, of an individual. Senius is the intelligence of a whole team, a whole group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're seeing much more of that now than we ever did before. For instance, one reason for that is because job definitions have become so blurry. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of people have lots of different jobs. You know, they aren't really one thing. They They do a bit of this and a bit of that and they make their own melange of these things um i see that more and more with young people because it's so hard to get a job so somebody who do a day on this place and a couple of hours over there they're always on the phone available for that job um this this is again sort of a a hunter gatherer f- style of of being occupied you know as opposed to the agricultural style where you have your field and you go and tend it every day and look after it carefully what i see people doing more now is um moving around finding things putting them together moving on doing something else it's it's so much less focused Mm -hmm. not all of not all jobs are like that by any means but for many people that's become you know i know young people who have four jobs and each one of them would have been your job A few years ago now it's just one of the things they do particularly in the arts i think true so we've all become Um,
0: pastoralists in a way
1: yes that's right i think so i'm just wondering there's lots of questions here do you think we should yeah we should have a look um okay here's i'll start at the end An anonymous question would you agree that music generally is comprised of notes which are specific frequencies of sound that resonate in the human ear we're sympathetic to these sounds. The rest of it, how we articulate sympathy with these sounds, is interpretation, which requires language. Um, I I don't know about it requiring language. I mean, I think one of the, part of the magic of, of music is that we don't have to be able to articulate it, um, how we feel about it. In fact, it's probably the, the experiences that we feel most strongly about are the ones that we can't articulate about. Yeah. You know, something has happened to us beyond language. Something, Things that happen beyond language feel very deep. They feel like they come from a very deep place in us. Um, and sometimes the articulating of them uh, slightly confines them, actually. So, I, I, the implication of your question is that language is is an essential part of the mix you're probably saying no i didn't mean that that's what i understood (laughs) um
0: and i think it's with me it's it's very much the the you know because i you know spent i write books and i was you know taught to think in writing and i've developed that over the years and i in a sense i i can say well that's very nice but that's not really what i care about (laughs) What I care about is music. That, that's what I care about, which I can't talk about. Um, I can talk, I, I can, I can talk about it in rough, approximative ways, but I can't express uh, why certain things matter so intensely to me. You know, when Nietzsche says, you know, without, you know, without music, life would be an error. Just think well, that's <laughs> that, that, that's right. Yeah, it, it would be an error, and. But there are people who don't feel as strongly about music, and I can't help judging them at that point in some horrible way. Yeah, so it's a kind of, um, yeah.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: Very nice person. I, I enjoyed the company of it very much, and he once said to me, "I, I just don't like music." Right. Don't and I, music. I said, "Well, any, any music?" He said, "Yeah, I just don't like it. I don't like listening to it," and that seemed to me so unusual. It made me realize how how much I assume that music is a key part of everyone's life. It, it wasn't in in his case. Can I can I read another question here? Yeah, questions too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um this is Jamie Denham asking on art and morality, doesn't a concentration camp also work by a system of internal rules, associations? Isn't music and abstract art aiming for the thing in itself, by definition, amoral? The thing in itself is one of those philosophical phrases, the, the Ding an Sieg, or, mm-hmm. or however they say it in German. Um, yeah um is it is it amoral that's a very difficult question um is it possible for anything that humans do to be amoral um don't isn't our morality informing everything that we do what what would be a philosophical view of that
0: yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult question. I mean, it's, you know, because you actually, in the diary, you say, you know, it doesn't a concentration camp also work by system internal rules and associate Yes, it does. And, um, you know, uh, and I, my view is informed by, I was very pleased to see Raoul Peck exterminate all the brute, very brutal, Documentary series, but um, it, it picks up from the work of Sven Linkvist, who's someone who I think is a very, very important thinker, who shows that basically that what the continuity of Western civilization is a, is, a, is a continuity of extermination, and we, do, we just get better and better at killing people, and and the, and the concentration camp is a, is, a, is a technology for that, and it mm-hmm. begins in you know in in Cuba, South Africa and then it's extended by the Germans into uh, into Poland and that's and does that mean there can be no poetry after Auschwitz? No that's where, you know, Adorno is wrong no, mm-hmm. it's not preconditioned for it but it doesn't disqualify it and it's yeah. um, and then the question of whether it's um isn't music a thing in itself and by definition immoral? I don't know, I mean it depends it really depends on what You know what metaphysics you're coming to there's 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 a view which you can find in say one of my favorite poets is wallace stevens one of his last Mm. poems called not ideas about the thing but the thing itself and his thesis roughly is that poetry is ideas about the thing it's not the thing itself and so he says there's a sun there's a there's a pond and and that's the thing in itself and i can't say that that's one view another view Another writer who I, I'm very uh, uh, much admire is called Annie Dillard, an American writer. Yeah. Um, uh, she takes the view, that, which is in a sense that no, in um, the, the thing in itself, in 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 an artwork, the thing in itself is alive. It becomes, you know, you have to 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 an artistic world has to be in a sense animistic. Right? We mm-hmm. have. To, we have to inhabit an animistic world where these are things in themselves and they have agency and they're connected to us. And I think if we ask us, if we ask ourselves the question about music, well, coldly, we, we could divide it up into different boxes. But when we're experiencing a piece of music, then it's not, it, it's alive. So therefore, and it's also not amoral. It's, you know, it, it's, it's part of our moral view that not in a kind of moralistic view but it's just kind of the sets of habits and practices and uh, and ways of thinking constitute being in a world in my humble opinion yeah <laughs> well
1: not that humble <laughs> It's a good now, opinion one thing i wanted to ask you one of the interesting things about art over the last 50 years or so is that very often it's been complete outsiders who've revolutionized areas of artistic behavior. So they aren't necessarily people who came up through the academy and studied this and that and so on and got their degrees and so on. Um, I mean, you see it in pop music in particular, where band like the Velvet Underground, who had a a drummer who'd never played drums before and, you know, who, who on paper should not have been a successful band, um, they were a great band, one of the great innovating bands. So mm-hmm. in in art, I think we're quite used to the idea now that sometimes it's complete outsiders who will change the direction of the art form. They'll, they'll do something that nobody within the so-called academy would have done. But is the same thing true in philosophy? Who makes philosophy now? I mean, I, of course, I know there are professional philosophers who do it, but are there outsiders people who come up with an idea which makes you think wow that's a thought that i hadn't ever had before that's a way of thinking um i don't know wh- who those people might be but
0: i think that the i think what's happened is that um and if i you know if i uh talk about my time as a student it makes to to you know the students I have now it sounds very very odd because i mean the people i was i was taught by were were weirdos they were they were mm-hmm. weirdos they were freaks they were odd they were they did odd things uh, they drank a lot and uh, and they found a they found a refuge in universities universities university of essex where i was at in colchester was a kind of a camp where there was the, these things. Things could be thought. Universities have become increasingly bureaucratized, boring. Yeah, um, and art schools too. Yeah, and art. Yeah, and our, our schools had that that too. So, someone I think you mentioned this in the book, but someone like Goldsmiths at a certain point had that kind of genius energy. It had what? something was going on there. There were, and it was yeah. something between teachers, students the uh, the pop scene the Bond Street galleries and it suddenly it, it, things emerged and yeah. in in philosophy it was possible to do that kind of work um, in academic structures it's it's harder to do that one is not invited to do that so someone that you you mention who is a kind of uh, I wouldn't say hero but someone I I admire although I criticised I, I I admire more and more since he left us is that like Richard Rorty. Uh, oh Rorty, gosh, my yeah. favourite philosopher. <laughs> Rorty, was, Rorty was, I mean, Rorty was, you know, an academic, you know, at, in philosophy at Princeton, you know, in a, in a serious proper. But he, he left. He had to, and um, he, he ended up, you know, in, as a professor of humanities, and he found that philosophy was, philosophy is very much structured as a guild, a kind of medieval guild with masters and apprentices, and that can enable a certain kind of training at certain moments, but it can also be stultifying and dull. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think we're in the stultifying and, and, and dull moment now. There's still good people out there, but academia has become a place where it's just harder and harder to say Really interesting things for reasons yes. that often quite bewilder me. Well, I have to say that in
1: Rorty was a very big figure in my life. He was the first philosopher, that contemporary philosopher, that I read where I thought this is talking about something that I want to know about. I would tried to read, you know, Carnap and all of those analytical philosophers, and I just thought. I don't even, I'm not interested in what this is about, actually. I don't even even care what they think about this. Whereas Mm -hmm. when Raw came along, something different happened. But the people now that I'm finding are sort of my philosophers. The people I'm reading for those kinds of thoughts are, for instance, feminist writers who came on board to fight a particular battle about feminism And it turned out that they had to rethink a lot of other things to do that. Mm -hmm. And in that rethinking, they, and and similarly, you know, with the, it's the rethinking, having to sort out the rest in order to sort out one bit. When people do that, it takes them through those thoughts in a way that doesn't happen to an academic study of philosophy, where you're, you're sort of, thinking about what other philosophers have said and reinterpreting that, rejigging it, you know. Um, it's when people actually start to engage with with the real world um, yeah. that, that they start to come up with really fresh thoughts. How do we think about this aspect of the world now? And for me, that was very important with Rorty because the first book by him that I read was a great book called Contingency, Irony and Solidarity. Mm -hmm. And in that he talks at some length about 1984, the book 1984. Um, It was a big breakthrough to me to understand something that we were talking about right at the beginning, that empathy can be used to hurt people as well. Yes. Empathy isn't just this wonderful kind of balm that you cast onto people and everyone behaves better people sometimes use their sense of empathy that's to say their understanding of what's in somebody else's mind to um hurt them or to defeat them or whatever Mm um yeah so so that that was very important but the philosophers now that i'm reading uh, a lot of the people who are writing books about the environment yeah. And about how we should think about our relationship to the future. I'm reading a, a fantastic book at the moment, which I'm I've got here, and I'm going to hold it up so that the audience can see it. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. No, I'll get it. It's it's an amazing, amazing, amazing book. It's the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. So he's he's basically a. Um, I'll hold it up again in case people want to write down the page. Um, I'm not paid to do this, by the way. <laughs> it's just such a thoughtful book. It's so full of ideas. Um, and one of, the, really, the ideas are about how do we value the future and what are we going to do about it? You know, the, we're currently destroying it at a fast rate. Um, do, we really, do we really think that there aren't going to be consequences for this? Do we really not care about our grandchildren for instance do we not think about the world that they're going to be in yeah um so this book is a it's a novel it's a sci-fi novel i guess you'd say but really it's a work of philosophy in my opinion um mm-hmm. and you can't read it without thinking about those things that philosophers think about mm-hmm. you know do we have can we affect the future for instance um is is there a moral position about affecting the future how do we discount the future and all these
0: sorts of things yeah the aversion i mean yeah the discussion of all well in contingency idea solidarity I mean, the the idea that what makes a liberal as he would put it is an aversion to cruelty that's it's as simple yeah. as that yeah the yes ironists, ironists about um, deep matters. We just don't know. And, and liberals, uh, in, a liberal just means someone who thinks cruelty is the worst thing that there is. And it has to be avoided. We have to yes. be, be nice, be nice. And don't be scared as Dave Chappelle would say. And it's the, it's the, um, it's the, the philosophy, uh, you know, has, um, uh, you know, in in, in the English speaking world, has largely ended up as a kind of technically sharpened common sense. There's some very mm-hmm. very clever people doing very 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 little uh, in terms of, and and, the, and and that's the way you're taught to do things. Because the the other op- the, the the option I've always taken is just throwing shit at the wall and you know see just see what see what happens and then yeah. Uh, and some of it sticks, and some of it runs down into little piles at the bottom of the, the wall, and that's fine. Uh, and uh, but Rossi had also, been that rarest of qualities, which is uh, prose style, he wrote incredibly well. So he's someone yes. that's been, um, I mean, very much forgotten in uh, mainstream philosophy, and uh, and the kind of the pragmatism that he adopted is uh, has been forgotten too, which is a real pity because. Uh it might just be right. I mean the, the thinker that I feel very I think that I feel very close to these days is uh, William James and William James's um late work which is a similar as a sensibility which informs uh Rorty very very deeply. But I guess yeah. what we I guess we've got at some point we've got to but I've got wanna get this in which is which is which uh, is really what I have
1: to do, just I just interrupt you for a minute. Because yeah. you know, I don't have—I blew the fuses in this studio, so yeah, I don't nah. have any power in here. So no, I—it's not getting dark. My computer is running out of power, but if I just walk across the garden here <laughs> into another room, so so there'll be a brief scenic interlude where people can look at my—that's where I am. That's my little house. Okay, that's all your scenic interlude, and now we're going across to the across to the other house. Isn't this nice little break? <laughs> There's this okay. is the studio I'm sitting in. Um, OK. Because then I can, over here, I can plug in, you see. Right. Going through the kitchen. Yeah,
0: I'm going to walk with you.
1: Sorry sorry about this, but I otherwise I'm just going to suddenly cut out and then that will be very rude. OK, just let me get my... <laughs> That's great. in. OK, there we are. Oh, now yeah. I'm... I'm back in action.
0: Looks <laughs> uh, um, a little bit East Anglian out there, I must say. Yes, yes. Yeah, you, you know East Anglia, don't you? I do, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I miss it. That's I miss cool. it very much. I miss the um uh I miss the, the Suffolk Coast, I miss um places like Orford and uh Albreu and um mm. even Fort Ness and mm. strange. <laughs> I love the kind of the, the kind of raggedy salty you know doubly kind of bushes you get on the suffolk coast and yeah uh, yeah there's, I, I missed it. i've not i've not seen it for a long time Stop sorry
1: here. i i interrupted you in you were talking about Rorty and i interrupted
0: no, I, you i, I, I was going to yeah ask you a question which is the the uh which is the following which would be um, the relationship between I mean, pragmatism, roughly pragmatism and and music, as as you understand it, and thinking about that in relationship to, I think this will make, I hope this will make sense, in, in relationship to the way you think about um, complexity theory, mm-hmm. that the, and I haven't re- realized this until I was rereading it on Tuesday but but complexity theory for you is that they're taking certain simple structures, say musical structures, you know, what you, you know, what you've done through, you know, to, you know, from discrete music to forward to reflection, all those those simple structures, and then and then allowing a kind of com- concatenation of simplicities to emerge yeah. into a new musical form, and that is not something that's not you know a thing in itself, kind of metaphysics you know you're you're that's a pragmatic sensibility it seems to me that what
1: that yeah. composition yeah it's it well there are two reasons for it. one i'm very attracted by economy by the idea that you can make things that feel magical from very simple materials um, it does i'm not impressed when people make th- complicated things from complicated materials it seems to me quite obvious that that's what you'd get but but i am impressed when i see something where it's very easy to see the what's used for instance like a mondrian painting yeah mondrian picture is incredibly simple but for some reason it works it's very powerful to me anyway um and ever since i was young i was fascinated by by that it seemed to me like the best kind of magic because that's what magic is you know the the Conjurer shows you the cards, and you you can see what's in his hand. You know what a pack of cards is, and something unexpected happens. Um, I always wanted that thrill from art that that. So I always wanted it to be kind of obvious to a listener what was going on. There's no sort of tricks. There's no concealed bits. It's this is all it is, and yet for some reason it works. And and the other thing, of course, is that I didn't have many other ways of making music available to me <laughs> you know i'm not a I'm not a player in the sense of I can't sit down at a piano and come up with a piece of music mm-hmm. um, i i so the tools I developed are tools for somebody who can't do those things but can do something else um but
0: which turn out to be you know. I don't know. To, I don't know. To, I was going to say better tools because you know it's um, you know in a sense the where are we with virtuoso musicianship? I think it's a it's it's quite hard to tell. Th- I was thinking when I was <clears throat> thinking about this over the last week, and I was stumbling back through things, and I was um, for some reason I went back to Gavin Breyer's um, yeah. Jesus, Jesus Blood yeah uh, fantastic and, uh, yeah and just just how and the simplicity of that there's nothing you know it's mm-hmm. the elements are, are completely obvious what the elements are there, there mm-hmm. are three and some recurring motifs and so yeah, here it is you know and and yet it's able to there is there's magic there there's something yeah. strange and um um yes and i find so awesome more, with me i mean Sorry. No, I was going to say that, and that's, I mean, you know, the, so if I look at the, say, the, the flow chart um, thinking back, I remember back to my, you know, vinyl copy of Discrete Music, which I bought when it came out, um, and the flow chart on the back cover, you know, where you say, this is what I did, looks mm-hmm. like, it's like a Cybernessyx diagram. Uh, yeah. And you think, well, okay, good. Uh, that's, that's brilliant. I don't really understand that, but I see what you're doing, but it doesn't. Uh, then the but the the, um, the magical quality of that, certainly for someone as a listener like me, I mean, why I would go back to that over and over again, not for not for reasons of familiarity, but for reasons of I don't know, some some felt something felt there, which is mm. so the system which generates this and the simplicity of that, and here are the elements, but then. The effect, the emotional effect is something else, which I guess that's the magic, right?
1: I saw something really nice in the supermarket the other day. Um, it was <laughs> a, new, a new kind of biscuit, uh, sort of a cracker type thing called Fro, F-R-O. And okay. they're, really, they're really delicious, I, I tried them, they're really delicious. And the great thing is they have put a recipe for how to make them yourself on the side of the packet. I thought that only Scandinavians would do that. They're from Denmark. I thought, what a brilliant thing to do, to say, okay, these are great, you like them, you can make some yourself. That's so generous, isn't it? And it it really made me a lifelong fan of that company. I'm going to live only on froze in the end, because I thought, why doesn't everybody do that? Say, this is how you
0: do it. Ministry for the Future and Froze. These are the two things I'm going to go out and buy immediately. I wonder if I can get get them here.
1: We agree that
0: we... We're We're passed out. Yeah, we've got... Yeah, yeah. yeah. We better finish
1: because I... I, I, We should probably have dinner or lunch soon. But...
0: Yes. And um, thank you to the listeners and auditors and the people out there in... Um, And I'm sorry we didn't get to a lot of your questions, but if you'd like to email me or whatever, just I'll I'll try and answer them. And uh, thank you, Brian, really. Thank you, Simon. It
1: was very nice to meet you. And I enjoyed having a chat with you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events,